NFL Week 6 is here, Jacob's Giants looking like they're actually for real, and Suma, the low-scoring environment that we've been seeing this season, might also be for real. You wrote that in Week 5, the median total score for a game through Sunday's slate was a paltry 38, and for the season, the median total score, just 41. That's the lowest we've seen since 2011. Previously, you'd written that you thought a lot of this might be due to offenses just being inefficient in the red zone, and that would often correct itself over a larger sample size. But as we get deeper into the season, Suma, are you seeing anything that tells you this low-scoring environment might be more sustainable? Perhaps it's just the new normal in 2022. Yeah, so first of all, the inside the 10-yard line stuff was one part. The other part is also that passing efficiency in general is down compared to uh, seasons prior quarterback play in general is down and it, it's still very hard to tell how much we can put on the defenses because defenses are generally playing more conservatively more to high shells and quarterbacks are really really struggling more and more against all of these two high defenses like cover two cover four cover two man and stuff like that so um i think yesterday someone from Pro Football focus tweeted out that the PFF passing grade for cover two is hovering around 60-ish. And against cover three, I think, or single high in general, it's in the, it's, uh, in the low 80s. So there's a pretty, pretty um, drastic split right now. And it's very hard to tell how sustainable that is because that gap seems like it's a little bit of more of random variance. But there's also, when, when you watch the games, you can really see that as soon as defenses are going too, too high, we saw it on Monday with the Ravens against uh, the, the Bengals or on Sunday Night Football. Like the Bengals are also a team that really struggles against all these cover two or, or two high shells that the opposing defense is playing. And yeah, we just have to monitor how drastic the split is going to be going forward how much cover two or two high shows defenses are going to play and whether offenses are going to find some um, solutions for the problem and it seems like the jets offense leading into the first game that we'll discuss today has started to perhaps find some solutions the total in jets packers has seen some two-way movement but we've seen more decisive market movement so far this week on the side in that one the Jets off an opener of plus eight down to plus seven, minus 105, or even a flat seven showing up at Chris and Bookmaker. Suma, of this, how much do you attribute to the market seeing some upside in your Jets and how much of it could be some downside that people are seeing from the Packers? You specifically noted the Green Bay defense leaving much to be desired in your article on the hammer on Monday. I think there is or there are two sides to it. For once, the Jeff, the the Jets, um, they are not getting super upgraded in the market from my point of view because Zach Wilson, he didn't have the greatest two games. Uh, he really struggled in the Steelers game until late in the game, and even the Dolphins game against uh, Skylar was I think nineteen seventeen early in the fourth quarter until the Miami offense collapsed. And the Jets had a, I think, two or three very short touchdown drives. Also, one touchdown drive was a wide open wheel route down the field to, to Breeze All. 
down the left sideline. So the offense in general looks to have a higher floor, but I don't think that people are all of a sudden too high on the Jets. And, and on the other side, the Packers are really not looking great on either side of the ball. Their defense, even though they spend so many resources uh, into it, is, is really struggling uh, and not even against great competition. I mean, if you look bad on defense against the Chiefs, that's one thing. But if the Giants with the wide receivers that uh, our friend Jacob will uh, refer to are going, to, are moving down the field against the Packers defense, that's really an issue. And don't know, I think... From a talent perspective, they have enough talent. They have to fix some stuff schematically. And on the other side, I really think that the offense, even though we knew they would get worse without uh, Devontae Adams, they are barely above average in some efficiency metrics um, on the passing side. So I think it's, it's really two-sided. And people are saying the Jets should not get more than a touchdown at Green Bay this week. One name you mentioned when talking Jets Packers, you weaved in Skylar Thompson, and we can use that to transition to the next game on the Sunday slate that we will touch on here. The side in that Vikings Dolphins game, Minnesota up to a three and a half point favorite after being a three point favorite earlier on in the week. Suma, I'm wondering if you're surprised that we haven't seen more movement off the news that Skylar Thompson, the Dolphins third string quarterback will be under center on Sunday for Miami. Or do you think that opener of Minnesota minus three had already baked that in as a pretty high probability? Yes, absolutely. The line of minus three told us that the market is generally believing that Scott Thompson would start. It just needed some more final confirmation. And what, what's pretty interesting to me is that I didn't believe that Teddy Bridgewater would get ruled out today, to be honest, because with the new protocol, we know that he didn't really have a concussion on on Sunday, but he was put into the concussion protocol because of that new rule with the extra spotter in the in the stadium. And now he cannot practice, I think, until tomorrow. Or I, th I, I think he, he has to be out for, for four days with the new um, protocol. And Mike McDaniel just came out today and said, Teddy is not going to start. Scott Thompson is likely going to start and Teddy, if active, will be the backup. So that tells me that there is a high chance of Teddy Bridgewater getting cleared by the uh, end of the week. That's why we also saw some money entering the market on the Dolphins earlier today. And then suddenly after they came out and said it's likely going to be Scott Thompson who will start because uh, I think McDaniel said that he wants his quarterback to get starting reps throughout the week. And Teddy will be the backup for Scott Thompson. And that brought the, brought the line up towards uh, minus three and a half. And I don't think it's going to be much further because, as you mentioned, it was already baked in. Where, with Teddy starting, we would, have, we would have seen this going towards Pickham. Now we have Skyler starting and the, the Dolphins will likely have Tyreek Hill. Zavin Howard might be back. So I, I'm not expecting too much of a movement anymore towards the Vikings here. While we're talking backup quarterbacks, the next team we'll touch on features one team that's already turned to its backup, another team that has been starting a guy who's been in the backup role for much of his career. That would be the Niners with Jimmy G traveling to Atlanta. They've stayed on the East Coast this week, but another road game in Atlanta to take on the Falcons and Marcus Mariota. The total in this one has seen some interesting movement. 
up to 44 and a half up from an opener of 42 and a half. So we've seen the total cross through that key number of 44 sumo. Why do you think that would be? I think that's because a, the Falcons offense has been above average, at least kind of decent uh, in terms of moving the ball down the field. Um, the Niners offense should not have too many problems with the Falcons defense that really is not getting too much pressure on opposing quarterbacks. And on the other side, the 49ers are dealing with some significant injuries on the defensive side, like Jeremy Kinlaw, Eric Armstead, Nick Bosa, all three might be out this week. They lost Emmanuel Mosley to an ACL injury. I think Jimmy Ward had a wrist injury. So they're really, really losing some bodies on their defense. Uh, the Falcons might get Kyle Pitts back. So this is really a classic game where initially you had a, let's say, great Niners defense, a Falcons offense that has not looked really sharp last week against Tampa Bay with a low, uh, with a to total opening in the low 40s. And then I think the market started to realize that, um, hey, we have a potential spot where there are too many injuries that would favor the under. All right, well, as we transition to the late window on Sunday, fortunately, doesn't seem like injuries are too much of a concern at this stage if we look at the Cardinals-Seahawks game. And if we look at the side in this one, Arizona is up to a three-point favorite at some books. That would be a cheap minus three, even money, widely available. Also, some Cardinals, minus two and a half, minus 115. And that's still a noticeable jump up from the opener of Arizona, minus two at Seattle. Sumo, with that move, do you think the market would be more doubtful of Geno Smith as a quality NFL starter these days or that Seahawks defense just being too porous to keep Seattle within a field goal? I'm probably more of the latter. We also had two strong releases earlier this week from two respected people that have market influence uh, with their releases. One came in on Arizona minus two and a half. The other guy came in on Seahawks plus three minus 115, I guess. So we, we had some interesting uh, back and forth um, among releases that have market influence. Um, yeah, I think in general, there are two questions to be answered. One is Geno Smith really that good? Is he like the 2019-2020 Ryan Tannehill version? Um and secondly, can the Cardinals bounce back against maybe the worst defense in the league? And I think these two questions need to be answered. And depending on what side you fall, you will probably either land on the Cardinals minus two and a half, or you will land on the Seahawks plus three, I would say. Um, Geno Smith, I mean, he's looking amazing. He leads the whole league in PFF passing grade by a mile. He has like six points more than Patrick Mahomes, which is pretty amazing. He also had a lot of crazy deep bombs at New Orleans. But I think the question and, and, the, and the very fair question is that how consistent can they be? Because they, they didn't have a very high success rate uh, against the Saints. Uh, it was more like um, struck, struck, big play, struck, struck, big play. So yeah, some really interesting questions surrounding this matchup. And I think it's fair to say that there's interest on both, on both sides here. And we've also seen some recent movement in the total for this one. What do you make of, of not just the side betting market, but the total betting market getting shaken up a bit recently with Cardinal Seahawks? Yeah, we saw um, that getting bet up 
uh, be um, north of 51. Then there was some buyback at, at uh, 51 and a half if, uh, and, and 52. I think what's interesting is when you think about these two teams subjectively, I think it's very hard to make a compelling case for the under because the Seahawks have shown the ability to score and their defense might be the worst in the league. On the other side, the, the Cardinals defense is more boom or bust and their offense should get back on track against a bad Seahawks defense. When you think about this matchup subjectively, it, it's very hard to make a compelling case for the under. But on the other side, when you are modeling and you include the uh, current scoring environment into your number, I think it might be very hard to get to a model number north of 51. And that's why I think that the move on the under was maybe more driven by betters that use sophisticated and quantitative models rather than by people who have more of a subjective handicapping approach. Fair enough. Suma, at this point, I'm going to take a quick break to jump off script. I know we've got a monster game, two really good games to discuss next, but I am seeing on my other monitor some movement across the board with Jacksonville, Indianapolis. Wanted to see if you might have any explanation as to why we've seen the Jacks just take some money. They were just pretty much minus two or even some minus two and a halfs across the board. Now it's pretty much painted minus one and a half, not crossing through a key number. So maybe this doesn't mean much at all. But when we see that kind of move at this time of the week, is that usually something related to some of the first injury reports that we're seeing? Maybe something not so promising with a guy like Jonathan Taylor? Or what else do you think might be behind some money that we just saw take the Jags down to a shorter underdog at Indy on Sunday? The injury report for the Colts came out about one hour ago, and it didn't look really promising. We had Shaquille Leonard still out, uh, DNP uh, safety Julian Blackman was out, Quiti Pay got injured in the Broncos game. He will, I, I think it's almost 0% that, that he's going to play. Jonathan Taylor was working on the side, not practicing as well. Um, the Jacks, they had two duds against the, uh, the Eagles in the way and against the Texans. Uh, the Colts offense ranks 32nd in pass DVOA and rush DVOA. So I think people might have been too low on the Jacks in this matchup early in the week. And now with the injury report uh, looking much worse for the Colts, maybe than anticipated, uh, because Shaquille is still in the concussion protocol after having um, um, some more days to get ready for this week. Yeah, I, I can't really tell whether this is exactly injury related because the, the move is occurring uh, one hour after mm -hmm. that initial injury report but it seems like betters or the market are starting to to play the jaguars as dogs here i know this isn't a pick show so i won't belabor the point here but it looks like the clock might be ticking a bit for those interested in teasing the jags this week yes. now it's plus one and a half that's the last half point we have where we can cross all the way up through seven in the standard two team six point teaser so maybe something that jacob and i will revisit with hitman on friday but for now let's move on to the game of the week and perhaps the game of the year buffalo at kansas city perhaps the best game of all time in the divisional round was played between these two teams at this stadium arrowhead stadium just a few months ago and now we see a pretty intriguing side here. Buffalo currently laying minus three, even money pretty much across the board. And that's up from an opener of bills minus two and a half after this line reopened post 
Chiefs victory over the Raiders on Monday Night Football. And I think that there are some narratives out there that could be backing a lot of the Bills' support. Uh, number one, revenge. Everybody knows how tough of a loss that was for Buffalo in the divisional round last season. And number two, it's a short week for the Chiefs going from Monday night to the Sunday game, whereas the Bills played in the early window this past Sunday, so they get the full week to recover. I would want to advise a strong word of caution against anybody putting too much stock into those narratives. I mean, when it comes to the revenge angle, I feel like we can almost flip it on its head and say the Chiefs could be equally motivated because for them to be an underdog by a full field goal at home to anybody in the league could be pretty insulting to them. And either way, I think it's important to acknowledge this isn't spinal tap. We can't crank it up to 11. I'm pretty sure the Bills will be giving their best effort on Sunday, but I'm also pretty sure the Chiefs will show up. So the Bills may well win and cover, but I don't think motivation is going to be a clear edge for them in this one. And as far as the short week goes, it's probably neutralized a bit by the fact that the Bills are their road team here and the Chiefs are playing back-to-back home games, so they have no travel on a short week. Overall, Suma, I know the Bills, the best team in the league, but are they really worthy of laying three at a team like Kansas City? I think the market are telling us that they are not right now because that um, there was some support for the Chiefs at a soft three. And we are also looking at some minus two and a half, minus 15, minus two and a half, minus 20 at, at some spots. I don't, I don't want to sound lazy, but I expect nothing else other than this uh, game bouncing between three and two and a half until Sunday. There aren't really any major injury news that could shake things. Isaiah McKenzie got cleared from concussion protocol uh, today. So the market, is telling, the market is telling us the Bills are the best team in the league by margin right now. Uh, Josh Allen will have his full arsenal of weapons, um, but they probably don't deserve to be laying minus three on the road at Arrowhead. I think that's what the market is uh, telling us right now. And it's it really interesting to see whether either side is going to take a strong stance, whether we are going to see a flat minus two and a half or a flat three at some point. And I think one thing we can pay attention to when we find ourselves in a spot like this, a heavily juiced two and a half or a heavily juiced three, depending on which team you want at, you know, the key number or the half point below the key number in the case of Bill's backers, a book like South Point doesn't charge any VIG beyond the flat minus 110. So they can often be pretty telling when we get to a game like this that is heavily juiced around a key number at pretty much every other sports book in the world. Right now, South Point laying the flat Minus 210 for Bills backers would be the way to go. You can't get the plus three on Kansas City. So maybe something worth keeping an eye on for those with odds trackers that let them see what a book like South Point is hanging. I feel like if they go to three, they're probably going to get flooded with Chiefs money immediately. That might be saying something about the side in this game. Who's to say? But Suma, you did also bring up the point that there aren't any major injury concerns for this game at the moment. One injury I did want to revisit with you. It occurred back in week one and somebody who's still absent for the Chiefs their kicker, Harrison Butker, seems silly to be talking about a kicker in a setting like this. But I remember when I asked you about the impact of his absence from the Chiefs and you said, if anything, you thought that it might make them better because instead of attempting, let's say, a 53-yard field goal on fourth and one from the 35, Andy Reid might just go for it. And that would be more optimal for the Chiefs to maximize their scoreboard output. 
At the same time, it has not been pretty for the Chiefs backup kickers in recent weeks. It cost them at Indy. It almost cost them dearly against the Raiders. Have you rethought anything about just how much it means for the Chiefs to be without Harrison Butker in key games such as this one against the Bills? Not really, to be honest. I think that when I remember right, Andy Reid has not been really aggressive. And there was also a, I think, fourth and short at some point in the Raiders game where he punted, where I thought you have to go for it now. Overall, um, my takes that the Chiefs might be more aggressive on a fourth down uh, instead of kicking it, I don't think were really fulfilled by Andy Reid. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, let's move on to primetime Sunday night football. The Cowboys at the Eagles. The side in this one has seen the Eagles bet up to minus six off of an opener of minus five. I know there were a lot of questions, speaking of injuries, that Eagles O-line going to be key this week. Suma, do you think the recent move up to minus six for Philly has been because of promising reports that people are getting for the Eagles in the trenches, specifically on the offensive side of the ball? Yeah, I think so. I think so. There's been very strong support for the Eagles since yesterday in the market. Um, I'm e even looking at some minus six, minus 15s. Pinnacle is um, having a very, very soft minus six and a half, minus or two. So, yes, it's been one way Eagles money since yesterday. Uh, Jason Kelsey said that he's absolutely going to play. Jordan Malada was held out last week. Don't know whether he's going to play, but. I would argue that if there's one offensive line in the league that can get away with either starting tackle because on so many running plays, they just uh, not block either defensive end. I think it's the Eagles. So, yeah, um, I think you really want Jason Kelsey in here to set protections and stuff like this. Uh, but at this point, it doesn't seem like Jordan Malada will have major impact on the line going forward got it well we've also got some injury concerns to monitor as we look to the other primetime game to wrap up the week monday night football the broncos at the chargers the side in this one has seen denver take some money they are down to plus five or even a four and a half at chris and bookmaker i'm still seeing um this one open chargers minus six and I know we've got some injury news here, namely Russell Wilson for the Broncos, Keenan Allen for the Chargers. Sumo, what do you make of those two or any other injuries worth monitoring in the days leading up to kickoff on Monday night? I think the injury situation for the Broncos is pretty clear outside of Justin Simmons, who is coming off IR. It sounds like he's going to play, which will be a tremendous boost for a Denver Broncos defense that has been pretty good even without Justin Simmons so far. Keenan Allen, the fact that he was DNP three times last week after not playing since week one, there were some rumors or actually some news that he re-aggravated his hamstring injury, which makes me believe he's 50-50 at best to play this week. So we might get some negative Keenan Allen news. Uh, for the player, I hope that he's going to play because it's been five weeks now. And on the other side, um, there there is all this uncertainty around uh, Russell Wilson's shoulder and we don't really have any clue if that's going to impact him going forward. I mean, the decline in play by Russell Wilson is obvious when you just uh, switch on your, your, your TV, but it's really, really hard to tell right now whether that's because of his shoulder 
or whether it's in general a problem with the scheme. Now they are also losing their left tackle Garrett Bowles. Um, I think the move down from six to four and a half, five-ish, was just better saying this can't be six because from a power rating perspective, from a modeling perspective, even with those injuries baked in, I think it's it, it's very, very hard to get to a six for the Broncos here, uh, especially in that uh, lower scoring environment in general in the NFL this year. And I think the rest of the way it will be de decided by injuries, um, whether there are bad Russell Wilson news, he might be limited throughout the week, uh, bad Keenan Allen news, uh, good Justin Simmons news whatsoever. I think I don't think that this line is going to get anywhere close to a three. Um, but I think depending on the injuries, we might see some two-way movement between four and a half and six uh, until Sunday uh, or Monday. You touched on some of the unknowns with Russell Wilson here. One thing we do know, Brandon Staley, quite familiar with Wilson, going back to Staley's time as a division rival with the Rams while Wilson was with the Seahawks. How much stock do you put into Staley's familiarity with the opposing quarterback in this one, as opposed to a game where, let's say, it was any other head coach, the same rosters, but there wasn't that level of familiarity from a defensive-minded coach? Does that give you any nudge in the Chargers' direction, or do you think it's pretty much fully baked into the line at this point? That's absolutely something that you have to keep in mind, but because the sample size is still pretty low, I think it was three games in 2020, Wednesday was with the Rams, um, yeah, it's a low sample size. And I think the Seahawks offense did not look good in all three games against Brendan Staley in 2020. So that's something to keep in mind. But I also don't think that this is such a high impact that it, it, it would have like a major impact on, on the market. One more follow-up for you on this one. And it's not just because I want to hoard attention for the Chargers this week, but from a coaching standpoint, Brandon Staley and Nathaniel Hackett have been lightning rods so far this season. And I'm less interested in trying to dissect who's been right, who's been wrong in certain cases, and when teams have been too aggressive or too passive. One of the things that's starting to stand out to me is just the inconsistency across not just these two coaches, but so much of the league going for it on fourth down from one week to the next. It seems like the same coach in a very similar spot might make a different decision. Same with two-point conversion attempts. Suma, what are you making of it when you handicap games across the league? Again, not just specific to Monday night, but knowing that Staley and Hackett are involved, it might rear its head on this Monday night game. When it comes to trying to pin down coaches' tendencies, it seemed like that's about as tough as ever these days. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So usually you want to bake in th this information, like the coaches who are aggressive on fourth downs, and also not just being aggressive for the sake of being aggressive, but when you see that coaches are just playing the odds that are on their side, that would be a boost for me when approaching any game. But like you mentioned, we have some very inconsistent decisions this year. Josh McDaniels on Sunday, it's like he's rolling the dice on some of these decisions. Like on the one fourth and one, he goes for it at midfield. Then he is a, he's got another fourth and one deep in the deep deep in Chiefs territory, and he decides to kick after taking a timeout. So that's nuts. I just don't really know or understand how they are really forming their decisions. I have no clue. 
Brent Staley has also been pretty inconsistent. He was very conservative on primetime against the Chiefs in Week 2, I guess. Then he's aggressive in some of the other games. Uh, Nathaniel Hackett at some point didn't know what he's doing at all. So it's, it's, it's really, really um, crazy to see. And I also think that it puts a negative touch on the quote-unquote analytics community because people are always referencing the analytics when something goes wrong and they just don't honor it when things go right. I think this is this is probably human nature also in, in, a, in a business where you get hammered for this, for bad results and not enough praise for good results. So let's just say that, yes, Brent Steady went for it on fourth and two late in the game. I think it, it was a smart decision, but it didn't work out. So everyone will say, oh, the bad analytics, it's stupid to, to go for it. You, you should just punt. Uh, but it's also very re result-based. So if they just hand the ball off to Austin Eckler and they get the first down, the game is over and everyone praises Brent Staley for his aggressiveness and keeping the ball in the offense's hands and stuff like that. So I think the general discourse is too much results-based still. And with, the, with some of these coaches having bad results, it puts, I would say, a negative sentiment on all the analytics stuff. Yeah, and I think it's important to underscore that point that the analytics, it's not like there's one machine that just crunches the numbers and that's what the analytics say. Even if you look at three different models for how Brandon Staley's decision to go for it at the end of this past Sunday's game went down, you get three different outputs from those models, one of which would say that it didn't even help their odds of winning. So when we see things like after the Monday Night Football game this week, they had Scott Van Pelt hosting SportsCenter talking to Joe Buck and Troy Aikman in the booth. And I think Buck mentioned analytics several times in terms of, well, <laughs> the analytics said to do this. They said to do that. And I, I, on one hand, don't want to hold it against Joe Buck too much because he's probably just doing the best he can with the information that he has available to himself. But it's not that there's just one person crunching a number and that's what it is that everybody's yeah. working with. There are a lot of human inputs to every different model. And ultimately, there are a lot of human inputs to what each head coach will decide to do. So I heard Tage Seth say it really well on Twitter and on his podcast, Take the Points. This wasn't an analytics decision on Monday night when yes. the Raiders went for two at the end. That was a Josh McDaniels decision. So knowing yeah. that analytics are factoring into all this, it is still a very human process. It's not just people saying, well, the robots should control everything because I know that that's what gets a lot of the pushback across the, I guess, more conventional NFL community. Yes. I mean, Joe Buck, I, th I think he said on the broadcast that it was an, an, an analytics decision. Like, there is no analytical model that tells you to go for two with eight minutes to go against the, against the Chiefs uh, on that uh, particular down. Like, no chance. It was just Josh McDaniel saying, um, we wanna, I want to go for two here and see what happens. That's it. And yeah, like I said, there's a very negative sentiment in, in the sports media right now. And it's always funny because, yes, there are some teams that are working with quantitative models that inform their decisions in-game, like John Harbour has that. And there, there are so many factors and variables that go into these models. Like a few teams are even including the closing spread from the game to get the odds of uh, what the market thinks of, of their particular um, um, uh, matchup and, and stuff like that. And 
then there are people in the media, ah, oh, there are so many factors that these models don't include, but they have actually no clue what's, what's in the model actually. So this, this is a public discourse that, that really triggers me because everyone is just talking bad about analytics, but actually didn't think one minute about what actually goes into the process. Well said. I think one thing, just to set the record straight, if people are looking to pick apart the pro analytics argument, I think you said there were about eight minutes left when the Raiders went for two. If I recall correctly, it was closer to four minutes, maybe four and a half. But the bottom line was the same in the sense that even had the Raiders converted, they would have had a one-point lead, but the game would have been far from over, and it only would have encouraged the Chiefs to be more aggressive once they got the ball back. So it would have guaranteed them next to nothing. So, uh, yeah, I, I know we've taken a bit of a detour down this path, but I hope that that thought process can add value uh, to the audience as we start to hit the home stretch for this show. Fabian, I wanted to experiment with introducing a new segment this week. We can call perhaps Fabian's Forecast, thinking about games we haven't discussed yet because we haven't seen any major movement. But maybe there's something you're anticipating, whether there's injury news we're waiting on or any other news. I know for the Thursday night game, God bless anybody who's going to watch that from start to finish. The total has seen some movement because of weather concerns. So on game day, there could be some forecasts that sway things toward the over or the under. Even looking in real time, a bit more breaking news with line movement on the show. The Browns have come off of the three. They are now laying two and a half across the board at home to the Patriots. So uh, just a half a point, but a half point off of the king of key numbers. So Suma, whether it's the Thursday nighter, Patriots, Browns, anything we haven't discussed yet that has some key updates that you'll be monitoring most closely to inform how you'll read market movement between now and the games kicking off on Sunday. Yeah, I didn't see any particular news for the Browns. Um, Denzel Ward was not practicing, but he was also not expected to practice under the new concussion protocol process. Yeah, the total in the in the Thursday night football game came down, I think, to 37 at some point, when, when I uh, remember correctly, because there was some wind in the forecast. And it seems like the wind is shifting towards noon. And right now we are looking at 11, 12 miles per hour of wind when there is kickoff and with 26 to 20 miles per hour of gusts. But the sustained winds are, are, go, are, are coming down. And that's what I, why I would not be surprised if we saw a little bit of more of an uptick towards the over. All right. I think at this point we've done all we can with our midweek look at market movement so we will go ahead and wrap it up want to let people know they can follow suma on twitter at suma 810 that's s-u-u-m-a 810 you can also catch him across the hammer betting network on primetime a sunday night football pregame and halftime live stream with rob pozzola as well as his must read article every monday up at the hammer.bet recapping the week that was across the nfl as for me, you can find me on Twitter at mlandes18, that's M-L-A-N-D-E-S-1-8. And Jacob and I will be back with you on Friday alongside Hitman for our week six prop betting breakdown. Jacob, we'll see what Hitman has in store as far as an encore goes to that Pittsburgh Buffalo prop betting bonanza from week five. That was a blast for anybody who followed along. But in the meantime, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today and we'll catch you again on Friday. Cops and cops and cops and cops.